Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today uh, I have such a pleasure to talk to my friend and the author of Citizens by Degree, Higher Education Policy and the Changing Gender Dynamics of American Citizenship. The book is published by Oxford University Press this year, and the author is Deandra Rose. Deandra, how are you? I'm doing great, Heath. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and um, we have talked about your book for so long not so long, for some period of time. And it's so great to have um, gotten the book and had the chance to read it. And I've been so looking forward to talking to you about it. So congratulations on it. Thank you so very much. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. It's it's so fun to have you on. Um, I know all about you, but maybe everyone else doesn't. So would you just share a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and where you are now and so forth? Sure. So I'm an assistant professor of public policy and political science at Duke University's Sanford School of Policy. I completed my PhD in 2012 at Cornell University. And before coming into academia, I worked in politics. So I did work in uh, Minnesota and Georgia politics. And I was actually a participant in Barack Obama's 2006 Yes We Can campaign and political training program, which was a wonderful introduction to national level politics. And I'm originally from Ohio. Yeah, that, that I didn't know that. Okay. So I, I just learned, so I didn't know you were from, from Ohio. Well, uh, it's, it's so great to have you on and, and to talk about the book. So let's, let's do just that. Let's, let's talk about the book. Um, throughout it, you, you talk about the concept of citizenship and the changes in, in women's citizenship. I wonder if you could start us out by talking a little bit about uh, what is what is your definition of full citizenship? Um, you know, what does it, it mean to be a citizen in the context of, of what you study here? So let's just start by hearing a little bit about that. Absolutely. So my conceptualization of citizenship is a bit different from a basic legal definition, whereas we're thinking, okay, I'm a citizen of the United States by birth or by naturalization, for example. This definition of citizenship moves beyond the legal definition to also include incorporation in the polity, incorporation in civic life, social life, economic life, and political life. And it also reflects a full inclusion as uh, someone who has first class standing in the polity. So someone who's treated as a full and equal participant of the citizenry with all the rights and responsibilities and privileges that that entails. 
Now, and and this this much more expansive definition runs throughout the whole book. You're not simply talking about the the um, legal citizenship that people either hold or don't hold. Your book is also about public policy, um, and two specific policies draw most of your interest. Uh, one that is a redistributional policy, and the other that is regulatory. Uh, these are these are uh, distinctions that matter, and maybe you can talk a little bit about those distinctions, and also just introduce us to those two policies uh, when they were adopted, uh, in, in in real basic terms, what they do, and then we can talk later about the more specific things that they do related to women. Sure. So I really I, I appreciate you pointing out that distinction between regulatory and redistributive policy because I think that's part and parcel of how lawmakers have been so effective in um, helping to promote change in U.S. higher education and helping to expand equal opportunity through higher education. So my argument is that lawmakers have used something of a one-two punch in something that has been a really lethal assault against discrimination, particularly sex discrimination in higher educational institutions. So first, they provided financial aid. And I'll talk a little bit about the policy specifically, but through the National Defense Education Act and the Higher Education Act, which were mid-20th century programs that created the very first broad-reaching federal financial aid. And then in the 1970s, the early 70s, lawmakers followed those policies up with um, you know, a bit of a, a stick, so to say. Like if you think about this idea of carrots and sticks with public policy or in public policy, Title IX was something of a stick. It was the federal government coming in and offering some guidelines and rules about what institutions could do. And it basically said that if you're going to receive this financial aid from the government, you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex when it comes to admissions, when it comes to how you treat students once they're on campus. And so I think what I love about uh, these policies is that they help to expand our appreciation for what the government has done when it comes to providing equal opportunity and ensuring equal opportunity in the United States. Um, and can I tell you, Heath, if it's okay, a little bit about how Absolutely. the idea came about? So, yeah, I, mean, I was going to just ask about that very thing. Uh, so it was, it was actually, and I have to say, I, I was taking courses as a graduate student, and I was in, a, I was enrolled in a course on work family policy. And during one of the lectures, the professor was talking about, you know, women's, you know, progress over the last 60 years and uh, in particular women's presence in higher education. And she was, you know, ticking off a number of reasons why we've seen this spike in women's movement into higher educational institutions. And so she pointed out things like, you know, declining fertility rates increased ages of first marriage, access to the pill, which has given women increased control over reproductive decisions and timing. She pointed to um, changing social attitudes about what women you know, can actually do, and then also changing uh, workforce opportunities for women. 
But the one thing that was missing from the discussion entirely was the role of public policy. And so that really got me thinking about, you know, why is it that we don't necessarily recognize the impact that federal financial aid and Title IX have had for women in higher ed? Yeah, and, and the 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 in-depth uh, story that you tell about the um the legislative history of of this policymaking is so incredibly interesting. You have this uh, chapter in the book focused on Senator Lister Hill and Representative Carl Elliott. Now, maybe people know who these two are, but uh, most probably don't. Uh, would you talk a little bit about these two that you refer to as the unlikely champions of federal student aid? Uh, who was Lester Hill and who was Representative Carl Elliott and what made them so unlikely? Oh, absolutely. So Lister Hill and Carl Elliott were um, members of Congress who hailed from the great state of Alabama. Lister Hill was in the Senate and Carl Elliott was in the House. And, you know, they were Southern Democrats in the mid 20th century at a moment when Southern Democrats were often inhibitors of U.S. social policy development. And so it's really interesting to note that they became, you know, the, the people who spearheaded federal financial assistance. And, you know, this was on the heels of, well, it began a little bit before Brown versus Board of Education, but much of their advocacy for federal financial assistance came in the wake of it, just as Southern states were um, actually protesting federal intervention in areas like higher ed and um, just the idea of channeling federal government support to the states, which they feared would interfere with rates of desegregating, you know, and, and I should point out that in the wake of Brown versus Board, you know, there was this idea that states would integrate with all deliberate speed. And as I often point out, you know, in 1958, they were putting a little more emphasis on deliberate than they were speed. So mm -hmm. um, Lister Hill was in the Senate and he was a champion of many progressive uh, policies. And uh, for example, he did a lot related to healthcare um, and also had an interest in higher education. And a lot of this was because, you know, it was part of his political strategy of uh, bringing benefits back home to his district. You know, he was a national level policymaker who recognized the value of educational opportunity for Alabama. Carl Elliott's story was, I think, especially interesting because he came from a low income family, and I believe it was a farm family, and he went to college with like $5 in his pocket, literally. He had no place to stay. You know, he always had to be so, sort of creative with finding um, lodging as a student, with finding food. You know, there were people, a lot of really kind people who helped him out. But he really had a hard scrabble experience when it came to accessing post-secondary education, and it really left an impression on him. And so he often says that the greatest thing he ever accomplished in his life, and this is a U.S. congressman, he says that the greatest thing that he ever accomplished was it uh, was graduating from college. And it was his personal mission to make sure that other needy students could achieve 
uh, a post-secondary degree without having to go through the hardship that he did. And so, you know, these were their pet projects. And again, like given the, the political context in the 1950s, it was, this was noteworthy that this was coming from Southern Democrats. Yeah. Again, DeAndre's book is uh, uh, Citizens by Degree, Higher Education Policy and the Changing Gender Dynamics of American Citizenship. Perhaps the strongest claim in the book, um, the book, the, the part of the book that, that uh, your eyes open widest to, is not just that women benefited from these new higher education policies, uh, but they did so almost accidentally. Um, and, but, but more importantly, that other issues related to race and ethnicity uh, were also in play, but not addressed by public policy. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about the ultimate compromises made related to the higher education policy that did not provide the same advantages for African-Americans as they did for white women, because this is, the, I think, the, the, the real um, heart of, of the argument of your book. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And, and because the design here wasn't, wasn't a foregone conclusion, either for incorporating women or not incorporating African-Americans. So maybe you can talk about that. That's exactly right. And it's what in the book I refer to as accidental egalitarianism. It's this idea that in cases like this, lawmakers have inadvertently expanded equal opportunity in order to achieve some other end. And so in the case of higher ed, you know, looking back uh, toward Lister Hill and Carl Elliott, I mean, they did so much to expand higher educational opportunity for women. And I mean, just to give a little bit of context here, the federal government had for many years adopted something of a hands-off approach to higher education policy. And so, you know, in the, in the late um, 19th century, in 1860, 1890, with the Moral Land Grant Acts, the federal government invested in, um, you know, flagship state institutions of higher education early on. In 1917, they followed up with some light higher ed policy in the form of support for vocational programming. But other than that, I mean, it was really left up to the states and local jurisdictions to deal with education, um, and states in particular for higher ed. In During the Depression era, lawmakers sort of waded into the area of financial assistance by providing modest support for already enrolled students during the Depression. But it wasn't until 1944, with the creation of the GI Bill, that lawmakers actually ventured into um, sort of big scale higher ed support. And they provided returning GIs with very generous financial assistance that helped to expand higher educational opportunity. But it largely did so for men at a time when military conscription meant that most of the returning GIs who were eligible for GI Bill benefits were men. So by the 1940s and 50s, women were really not, you know, in the center of lawmakers' minds when they were thinking about expanding access to higher education. And in fact, the idea that the federal government would successfully pass a policy that would move, you know, the national government into this role of, you know, almost like, you know, support secondary parents in providing support for higher ed was just not on the political or policy agenda. 
But it was Sputnik in 1957. The Soviet Union launched a satellite that really uh, devastated the U.S. There was a lot of questioning about why we lost the space race, and people quickly turned to education as the culprit. So it wasn't this idea of it's time to to pass some policy to ensure that women have access to higher ed and to ensure that college is affordable for all citizens. It was really this idea that in order to preserve national security, we need to invest better in higher education so that we can really take advantage of all of the brain power, uh, which was often defined as manpower in our country. And so You know, this in and of itself, this idea of expanding the federal government's role in higher education was pretty controversial. And Lister Hill and Carl Elliott, this is, you know, the big secret that I think is brilliant. They had pre-existing higher education scholarship proposals that they had been trying to pass since the 1940s unsuccessfully. And they were always, you know, shut down by Southern Democrats, essentially. But with the past, with the launch of Sputnik and this this new concern about education, they recognized that they could harness their existing proposals to this national security crisis and push it through. And so, the main issues that tended to hurt education proposals and other social policy proposals were the issues of race and the issues of religion. And so one issue that kept coming up time and time again um, that really led to the downfall of many education proposals was this idea that the federal government or the question of whether the federal government should even venture into providing support for education because what about the separation of church and state? If we give federal funds to Catholic schools, for example, you know, what do we make of that? Is that appropriate? And how about, again, this question of Southern states that were working to desegregate, you know, deliberately in, in, in many of them taking very slow rates. What would that mean if we have the federal government directing federal assistance to our states? And then, you know, they'll probably feel as though they have the right to tell us what to do in regards to the racial racial order of things. So in framing the National Defense Education Act, um, there was a suggested amendment to the policy that was added by Adam Clayton Powell, who was a congressional representative from New York, who in collaboration with the NAACP drafted this non-discrimination language that he tried to attach to many social policy proposals. And so, you know, sure enough, like clockwork, he offered this amendment to the proposed National Defense Education Act, this federal scholarship proposal, saying that, you know, ensuring that there will be no discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, or sex in the provision of the funds. And this was really controversial. And so this was an issue that Lister Hill and Carl Elliott had to really grapple with. So ultimately, they managed to convince Adam Clayton Powell and his allies that the proposed NDEA was inherently non-discriminatory because the funds would be allocated on the basis of need, not you know, to 
not according to a particular institution, but the funds would be given to students and the students will, will have achieved admission into a college or university. On the flip side, they convinced Southern Democrats that they didn't have to worry about the federal government pumping support into their states because the support was going to students, sure, but in order to go to college with the funds, you had to get admitted to a college. And they were not you know, venturing into telling colleges what to do when it came to who they admitted. And so um, looking back, you know, my question was, you know, I see that there was this sort of delicate race issue, but where did gender fit? You know, where was discussion about women? And there was very little. Um, lawmakers were really preoccupied with the race question. And the inclusion of women, broadly speaking, was largely a matter of not wanting to rock the boat when it came to race. So lawmakers intentionally intentionally left the language fairly vague. They didn't go into religious requirements, racial requirements, gender requirements. It was very much, you know, this is need-based financial assistance that's open to, you know, broadly to everyone. But in order to receive it, you have to be admitted into an institution. Yeah, it's just such an amazing um, uh, subtle way in which policy is made and which discrimination uh, plays out, um, this way in which uh, the, the the policies of Jim Crow get played out at the national level in, in so many ways and, and perpetuate uh, the kind of discrimination that uh, that exists among some groups, but not all groups. Um, based on based on your your uh, analysis, um, uh, women, white women, were then the beneficiaries of new national. Uh, Federal, uh, federal higher education policy, but not just in access to higher education, not simply uh, earning more college degrees, but also related to citizenship, which we started our conversation with. I wonder if you could talk briefly about the, the ways that you observe this. Um, what are the ways that, that you show that women um, didn't just directly benefit by being able to pay for college uh, with federal funds? but also expanded uh, citizenship more broadly. So what are the indicators of that? Yes. So political scientists have long recognized that people who have higher levels of educational attainment tend to participate in politics at higher rates. And so my question was, do we see any association between using, say, federal student loans and higher rates of political engagement. And so I use empirical analysis to test this question. Um, And this is um, essentially my policy feedback analysis. And I find that, um, at the very least, I can say with some um, confidence that these policies are associated with higher levels of educational attainment. Now, my analysis stops a bit short of indicating directly that the use of, say, Pell Grants um, directly leads to higher rates, higher rates of political engagement. But those same models do indeed confirm that people who have higher levels of education are more likely to vote and to participate by contacting elected officials, 
by contributing money to candidates, um, by volunteering for a political cause or a candidate. So by helping women to get these college degrees, federal lawmakers have played a really important role in uh, mediating who has uh, a greater likelihood of weighing in on the political landscape. And I think that's huge. So if you look at trends in political engagement over the last 60 years, you know, there is this very sobering trend of declining political participation overall. But if you look at the trends for women versus men, we notice that the declines for women are less steep as those for men. And I suspect that that's because of the higher rates of educational attainment that we're seeing for women. Yeah, the, the, the book and, and all of these interesting findings, these interesting analysis and the interesting legislative history, uh, all included in, in Deandra's book, Citizens by Degree, Higher Education Policy and the Changing Gender Dynamics of American Citizenship, published by Oxford University Press. Deandra, thank you so much for your time today. Keith, thanks so much for having me here. It was a pleasure to talk with you.